For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to, to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. God bless the reading of his word. We will now continue our time with, um, with the sermon series, Jesus is Better. And we have Pastor Jeff who will be sharing on Jesus, the founder of our salvation. Over to you, Pastor Jeff. What do we look for in our heroes? Character? Yes. Courage? Of course. Someone who inspires us, right? Inspires hope. 
I think we also, more recently, uh, look for heroes who can represent us, who we can identify with or who can identify with us, that we feel a, a connection to, whether it's one thing or another, uh, maybe heroes who might even look like us. I had the opportunity to watch the movie Shang-Chi recently, and just curious, by show of hands, how many of you have seen it or, or maybe plan to see it at some point? <laughs> Double hands, nice, in the back. I, I think there's something about being able to see yourself in the heroes that get portrayed on the silver screen, right? And I'm get, going to guess that we don't feel the same sort of connection to King Khan as we might to a female heroine like Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman or, or someone like Spider-Man or Black Panther or Shang-Chi. I, I mean, which, which one of us watches a Godzilla movie and says, one of us, one of us? It's ridiculous. I think we also want our heroes to, to face challenges, right? But not just the challenge of saving the world, because that's not at all relevant to, to us, but challenges that hit home for us, that are relevant for us, but challenges that where, where perhaps we might fail, they, being heroes, overcome. You know, personally, maybe that's why I've been drawn to watching this Superman and Lois TV show. This is the, the premise of the show that's listed on one of the websites. After years of facing supervillains, monsters, and alien invaders, the world's most famous superhero, the Man of Steel, a.k.a. Clark Kent, and comic book's famed journalist Lois Lane come face-to-face -face with one of their greatest challenges ever, dealing with being working parents in today's society. Superman as a parent of two teenage boys. Now, the show doesn't show a sleep-deprived Superman, although that would make me feel a lot better. But it, it does show, you know, this hero, superhero, dealing with the challenges of raising a family, of trying to figure out how to talk to his teenage boys. You know, these things don't necessarily take away from him being Superman in the show. In fact, I, I feel like it actually gives a whole other perspective to him being Superman, the man of steel, the, the last son of Krypton. Now, our passage this morning, we're continuing our sermon series, Jesus is Better. And it's going through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be talking about a, a, another, a different hero. But not just any other hero, right? Not a fictional character, but the very real, the very true Savior of the world, Jesus. So chapter 1, we uh, really honed in on this proclamation, this declaration that Jesus is better, right? This is the thing that we kind of been hammering in week after week, that he was better than the prophets, he was better than the angel, he is a better mediator. And last week, Pastor Jeff Arthurs encouraged us with God's word from the beginning of chapter 2. Look, listen, and stop. Don't drift away from the Lord. Now, as we continue chapter 2, the author of Hebrews is, is putting our focus again on Jesus Christ. 
One of the things that, that stands out in the remainder of this chapter is, you know, we saw at the end of chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to angels. But why then in this chapter does it say that he was made a little lower than the angels? In other words, why, why did Jesus have to become incarnate? Why did Jesus have to become one of us? Why couldn't God just come down as a giant monkey or a giant lizard monster, right, and save the world from sin and death? But instead, what we find in the gospel, in the word of God, is that Christ became truly human. He represented us. He identified with us. He looked like us. I mean, no, he's not like Shanxi, he wasn't Asian, and Jesus wasn't white either, but Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now, does that make him less of a savior? Does that make him less God? The author of Hebrews declares, no, not at all. And in fact, he argues, and we're going to find this later on, that it was necessary. He says it was fitting. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn with me to Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. We're going to be working our way through the passages. It'll be helpful to follow along. You can flip there. You can scroll there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, maybe you haven't downloaded a Bible app yet, that's okay. You can do it after service. But you can take one of the pew Bibles in front of you. I think John said it was on page 1001. So let's, let's begin there. This is how our passage starts, verses 5 to 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death everyone. What are we seeing here? Jesus's humanity does not compromise his superiority. Jesus is better. The author of Hebrews begins by quoting from Psalm 8. Now, if we were to kind of go back to uh, the passage that he's quoting from, Psalm chapter 8, we find, you'll find that he's actually, the psalmist is actually talking about mankind. The supposed or seeming insignificance of humankind, of men and women, that we're, we're kind of puny and, and small when you think of, you know, the vast creation, the vast universe. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is the Son of Man, another way of putting it, that you care for him? He's kind of, in our minds, stacking up how, uh, uh, stacking us up against some of the amazing things in this world that would, to some extent, make us feel small, right? Standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, 
flying in a plane over cities and streets and so that people and cars and things look like ants. And yet the author of Psalms says, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is this poetic recapitulation, this, this looking back towards the uh, creation account in Genesis 1. And for those of us who are familiar with the, the Bible, you know, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created mankind. And he says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion, right? Put things under subjection, in subjection. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Men and women, we are made, you and I are made in the image of God. We're made after his likeness. Not after the likeness of the beasts of the air or the fish of the sea. We, mankind, humankind, was given dominion over all of God's creation. And now the author of Hebrews is is taking that Psalms passage that highlights the the dignity, the purpose of man, that we are to be God's vice regents, his representatives here on earth to steward his mission. And he applies that directly to Jesus Christ. In this passage, the, the phrase, a little while, it's actually a little bit ambiguous. It can mean at least two things. So one, it can mean by a short degree, like how the psalmist is using it. So that's to say that the the status of man is by a small degree, you know, lower than that of the angels in the sense that they're, they're spiritual heavenly beings and we're here on earth. But the same phrase can also mean for a short time, which is how the author of Hebrews also understands it. That, that for a short time, the Son of Man was made a little lower than the angels through his incarnation. Paul writes in Philippians 2 about this, right? Though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this this huge chunk of a passage that's being quoted that starts off our, our passage this morning. What's the point of all this? After creation, we find that, that Adam and Eve, men and women, disobeyed God. We rebelled against him. Sin and brokenness, fallenness entered into the world. So there was brokenness. There was a loss of dignity, even a loss of purpose, if you will. But Christ, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that passage because in Christ, God's purposes for his creation still stands. In Christ, these purposes are actually restored and fulfilled. So in that sense, Jesus, again, is superior. He is better. Him being fully human doesn't change that, doesn't compromise that, doesn't devalue. 
throughout this passage, uh, the first few verses, the whole created order is, is described as being placed in subjection under him. And we kind of talked about this in previous weeks. We, we saying about this, right? That Christ is enthroned. He is already enthroned, having humbled himself on the cross, having died a sinner's death, having been raised and exalted. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And remember why all this is written, right? The author of Hebrews is is writing to a, a people, to Christians who are in danger of drifting away, of giving up their faith. For them, it was persecution, probably. For us, it may not be so much persecution, but, but for other reasons. And he is encouraging them, you and I, to remain faithful in spite of whatever trials and challenges they may face, we might face. And he does this by kind of refocusing our attention on not just what matters, right? It's not just about going to church and doing this and doing that and going through all these motions. It's about, about who matters. He is remind us, reminding us of the good news of the cross, of Jesus Christ. Jesus is superior. He is better. Him being human doesn't change that. doesn't compromise that. Jesus is king. Everything is in subjection to him. Now, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is no fool, right? He, he points out this contrast between what they do not yet see and what they actually do presently see. What is their present lived experience? Because life is hard. Following God right now is hard. I mean, we might say, you say <clears throat> everything is in subjection to Christ, but maybe we don't see that to be the case right now, not every day. Why are we still suffering? Why am I, when I am away from everyone else, why do I feel tempted? Why do I have these thoughts? Why do I have these desires to just give up, to forsake and forget God? Why do I have these feelings of shame or guilt or loneliness? Hebrews 2 says, yes, evil, sin, brokenness, fallenness still exists in this world and will until the world to come, until Christ returns and reigns and that kingdom is fully ushered in. Verse 5, but, but he poses this question for us. Where do we fix the gaze of our faith in the meantime? Life in the meantime. Verse 9, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. When we're struggling in our faith, when we're doubting, and, and as Dr. Arthur, as Pastor Jeff Arthur said last week, it's okay to doubt. We all doubt when we're tempted to drift, when we ask ourselves, is Jesus really better? Is life with Christ really worth it? When we look at all these other things in our lives that we feel is good and they are good, 
But we ask, is it, are those things, is, is Jesus really better than those things? Scripture calls us to fix our eyes upon Jesus who is enthroned. On the truth that he already reigns. And that he suffered for you and I. So that the cross, that instrument of death, would become an instrument of salvation. During World War II, some of you guys know history. You guys have heard of D-Day, right? Day of Defeat. When, when victory was basically secured. When the Allies secured the victory. But there was also V-Day, Victory Day, when the war ended later on. Now, that didn't ha- V-Day didn't happen right after D-Day. There was a period of time. In between D-Day, that day of defeat, and the day of victory, when the war was final, when it was ended, there were still battles. There were still skirmishes. It wasn't over, over, ultimately. We live in the period between D-Day, when Christ secured that victory, that defeat, conquered death, in sin, on the cross. We live between that day and V-Day, when Christ returns, the world to come, when when the kingdom is ushered in. And and that's partly why right now we we face challenges. We face trials and challenges and, and temptations. But we are reminded as as Hebrews' original readers were reminded, we look to what was accomplished on the cross. We see Jesus on that cross who suffered death for us so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The passage continues, and the author of Hebrews uh, says in verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus' humanity does not compromise his superiority. But then we might ask, what's the point? Right? What's the point of him being human? And it's this, that Jesus became one of us so that he could save us. The beginning of, uh, of this next section, verses 10 to 18, we read that Jesus is the founder of, of our salvation. The author of Hebrews wants us to see that it was fitting, it was necessary, that it had to be this way. It had to be done this way. There was no other way that salvation could be secured. That God, the Son, would become incarnate. That salvation would be through one who was truly God and truly human. Even though the idea of a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block the Jewish people, and foolishness to Gentiles, right? Some of the people back then, they couldn't accept the idea of of a Messiah who had to be crucified on the cross. God dying, heroes dying, that wasn't their idea of a Messiah, of of their hero. And to the Greeks, it seemed just utterly, utterly foolish. Like, why would we place our trust in someone who had to die in such an embarrassing and shameful way, who had to die uh, 
suffering upon him that was reserved for the worst of criminals. And yet, Hebrews said it had to be this way. He is the founder of our salvation. That is, that he paves the path for us. He, is, he paves the way. He is the pathfinder, if you will. And one of the, the benefits of this for us is that then we are then adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are brought into the family of God. You know, that relationship that you and I have now because of Jesus, it's so close that in this passage, Jesus is called our brother because he shares in the same humanity in Adam and from Abraham, not a, a sinful humanity, but he was fully human. Jesus became one of us so that he could save us. Now, now what are some of the implications of that? What does that he actually do? The passage continues, verses 14 to 16. So, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became one of us, right? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, us. Jesus came to defeat death and the devil. In these few verses, we see that through death, Jesus actually destroys the one who has the power of death. And he delivers the ones who are in fear of death. That's us, right? <clears throat> but it, it does seem a little bit strange, right? That you know, how, how does dying actually help him conquer death? How can the, the suffering of death result in Christ actually conquering the one who has power over death, the power of death? I think part of it, a big part of it, is that, that Christ was innocent, actually. That Christ died in an in innocent death. He, he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, perfectly obeying the Father. But he died a death reserved for the guilty. You and I should have been on that cross. But him taking that place, he redeems us. He liberates us from the fear of death, from spiritual bondage, from judgment. Romans 8, Paul writes in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you and I from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does it mean that we fear death? In part, it means that we love this life more than the life to come. That we love this life here on earth more than the life that we might have ultimately with God in his kingdom. And what happens then? We orient our entire life, our behavior, our actions, our time spent, the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we value all around this life. 
Not to say that things in this life aren't important or relevant. They are. I mean, God created this world. But there's more. What else? Jesus is the high priest who is able to help those who are being tempted. This is how our passage closes today. Verse 17 continues to hit at this idea that the humanity of Jesus was fitting. It was necessary. That Jesus could not have represented us before God, could not have presented himself as an offering and a sacrifice on our behalf if he was not one of us to begin with. There's that, that emphasis That feeling of seeing ourselves in the heroes, right? In this hero, Jesus Christ. One one commentator put it this way, really succinctly, that representation requires identification. Now, why is this good? It's not just that salvation is found in Jesus, which it is. But this has relevance. It it, it has impact for you and I in the day-to-day for the readers of Hebrews back then, and for us as well, especially as we face challenges, as we face temptations to sin, to drift. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I mean, we worship a God who sympathizes with us, who knows, who understands what you're going through. When your friends might not be able to, and I'll admit sometimes, you know, your pastors might not always understand. We might get it wrong and not always understand what you're feeling. But you can find solace and comfort that God is present there with you. That He understands, He knows. We might push back a little bit, right, and say, well, I mean, Jesus was sinless, and he, he was perfect, right? How can he really know what I'm going through when I'm tempted? Can he really know the struggle that I'm facing right now? Can he really know the doubts that I have, the questions that I have, the desires that I have if he hasn't sinned himself? I think, I, I like how one, one scholar put it this way, and we're going to, Read it here. Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which actually only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls, like you and I, yields before the last strain. What is he saying? I think he's saying that Jesus doesn't have to have sin for him to sympathize and understand what you're going through. In fact, this author put, goes even further. He puts it even more strongly that Jesus probably understands the temptation better than you do, better than I do, because he overcame it. That he didn't give in, and that, he, that meant that that temptation threw everything at Jesus. And it lost. But because of that, he, he gets it. He knows 
Whereas you and I, I know sometimes like we're dealing with a sin or temptation and then, you know, we fight a little bit and then we give in. You know, it was hard. But maybe if we look back, we didn't struggle that hard. But Jesus, he went through it. He became one of us. It had to be this way. Again, here's the difference that Jesus lived a life we could not live. He, he lived a sinless life. He died a death we should have died. He died a sinner's death. And he rose to give us a life that we could never have otherwise. A resurrected life. A new life. But because Jesus is not just truly God, but also truly man, we can come before him with confidence, with faith, with encouragement in peace. Let us pray. God, we give thanks for your sending your son, Jesus, to become one of us, to represent us, to take our place on the cross, to suffer the punishment and the penalty of sin for us. We also give thanks that Jesus understands that you understand that you are a God who is not impersonal, who is not distant, who didn't just create this world and, and then left and let it run. But you're a God who is present, who cares deeply about every single person in this room, every single person watching online right now. May I pray now for the people watching, the people worshiping here, that for those of us who are struggling, who, are, who have questions that we have not even brought up to our parents, to our loved ones, to our friends, for people who feel all alone, that they would experience you and know that you are there with them that you understand. In Christ's name we pray.